I did want to show something to you. This uh, Karen, for for the last um, last probably year, maybe longer, has when we have these children's church Sundays once a quarter, has been putting together a children's bulletin. Uh, some of you may see some of the kids with this and wonder what is that. Uh, that's something that Karen and, and the children's ministry folks put together. It's to enable the the younger members of our congregation here to have something they can follow along with as we're kind of going through the the text together uh, and activities at different levels. So if you've not seen that, um, that's what that is. Um, Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and uh, I've called this sermon uh, Mission in the Midst of Opposition, and I thought about that as I was putting it together and realized that if, uh, if I had a theologically informed uh, English teacher who was reading that title, she would count off for redundancy. Uh, because mission, in its truest form, never takes place outside of opposition. Uh, there's always opposition to the gospel of Christ going forth. And always opposition that you will encounter whenever you try to do ministry to people who need it. Um you're always going to encounter people or, uh, in some cases, spiritual forces who are going to stand against you. Um, And mission is one, mission, uh, in fact, opposition, I think, is one of the defining characteristics of whether or not you are doing any effective ministry and mission. Um, one of the one of the folks who came up to uh, D.L. Moody when he was alive uh, said to him, uh, Reverend Moody, I don't like the way you are doing ministry. And he said back, well, you know, I'm not really that much of a fan of it either. Um, you know, can you tell me what it is that you're doing that would help me to be informed as to a better way of going? And the guy kind of stood there and stammered and said, well, you know, I'm not really sharing Christ with that many people or whatever, and and Moody said back, well, I sure like what I'm doing better than what you're not doing, <laughs> okay, which was a good response. Um, we as Chillicothe Bible Church are seeking to be on God's mission of carrying the gospel to the nations, whether it's the nations of Indonesia whether it's the nations of Chillicothe or Mossville or those pagans up in Henry. Uh, <laughs> okay. The heathens in Sparland, you know. <laughs> um, you know, um, everybody needs Jesus. Amen? Everybody needs Jesus. And we are seeking as our church to both internationally and nationally and locally Share the gospel and carry it to people who need to hear it, which is everybody. Jesus said, go into all the world. Does that include Sparland? Well, we might make an exception there. But, but no, yes, that includes Sparland, right? Um, that includes the pagans in Lakin, the pagans in Chillicothe, the heathen in Henry. You know, uh, That includes everybody who needs to hear the gospel, and our church is seeking to be part of God's mission. Um, and we're going to learn a little bit about mission this morning um, from Mark chapter 6. We're going to go through uh, verse 29 here. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by the, his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him so that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and appointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but he was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so immediately... So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, parts of this are not a story you would see on flannel graph usually. Okay? Um, and I know there are kids here, and I'll try to be sensitive as I explain this th this whole thing, okay? Um, but this is in the Bible, and this is God's Word and His truth. And um, and we need to be careful not to shelter our kids from 
from things that are actually there in the Scripture. Um, but I want to start back at verse 1. Now, in the first six verses of this chapter, what we see um, is what I would call homegrown opposition. Jesus has been ministering in Capernaum. He's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's healed this bleeding woman. He's cast out demons on the other side of uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. He's done these magnificent healings, and now he's ready to go home and be with his family and be with the people that he grew up with. And when he gets there, um, he's, he just kind of hangs out for a few days and then the, until the Sabbath comes, and then he goes to teach at the synagogue, which is what Jesus commonly did. He normally went to the synagogue, and when he was there, uh, he would teach. Now, Jesus has grown up among all these people, and so probably he had not customarily taught at the synagogue much as a, as a man, young man growing up. But now that he's begun his ministry, when he goes home, he starts teaching at the synagogue. And all the local people are commenting on Jesus, and not in a good way. They're making a lot of snide observations now, and if you want to, you want to kind of get the get the sense of what this is like. Imagine that you're Bill Gates going home for your 20 year class reunion. Okay. I uh, Bill Gates grew up in kind of a small town, went off to college, founded a little small computer company back in the 70s that grew to become Microsoft, and by his 20 year reunion, he was one of the world's richest men. Thank you. He's one of the world's richest men, one of the most well-known figures in the whole country. Jesus is in a similar position. Within just a few months after leaving home for the first time, he's become one of the most well-known people in the whole country of Israel. And he's going home, and there are people who are looking to take him down a peg because everybody thinks Jesus is great. And, you know, like if you were Bill Gates, you know, you're going home and and uh, there are probably some guys there that are thinking, I used to stick that dude in a locker. <laughs> Didn't we give him a swirly once? I mean, you know, and here's, and here's this guy, right? And the same kind of dynamic is at work with Jesus here. They are asking things like this. Where did this man get this authority? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? You catch the sneer in there? Isn't this the carpenter? Carpenter is a perfectly honorable profession, then as now. Okay? But it's not a it's not a highly honored profession. And so I mean, it's not said in the same way as someone would say, Isn't this the heart surgeon? Okay. They're asking the question with a sneer in their voice. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this that blue-collar dude who works with his hands? Where did his, where did his authority come from? Then they ask another question. They say, isn't this, and notice how they ask, isn't this Mary's son? Now, normally in Hebrew culture, you always referred to the, the, a, a, a man with reference to his father. 
okay? So, so as an example, Paul, I mean, uh, Jesus, when he refers to Peter, refers to him as Simon Bar-Yonah. Simon, the son of John, okay? But when people back home in Nazareth are talking about Jesus, they say, isn't this Mary's boy? Why do they do that? Because they're drawing attention to the fact that Jesus' parents were not married when Jesus was born. There's kind of a pall of not quite reputable cast over Jesus. It's a backhanded way of slapping Jesus and saying, who does this dude think he is anyway? And Jesus says back, only in his hometown, among his own relatives, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Because these people have seen Jesus grow up among them, and so to them, he's nothing special. In fact, he's not even among them the best and the most wonderful of people because he's got kind of a cloudy past with his parents. Um, and the text says that he could not do very many miracles there. Now, scholars differ on what that means, but I think what it means is this. It's, n- it's not that Jesus' power is limited by people's faith, okay? That is not the case. God's power is not limited by our response, But what is the case is this, that in order to get ministered to or healed by Jesus, you had to come to him in faith, trusting that he could help. And if you don't believe he can help, you won't come. Amen? So he can't do very many miracles there, not because his power is somehow constrained by these people's bad attitude, but because their bad attitude indicates their lack of faith, which would mean that nobody would come to be healed and helped. And so um, there's just a few people who are able to be healed, and, and that's it. There's no mighty demonstration of power because nobody believes enough in Jesus to actually seek him out and see that happen. Um, this is one kind of opposition, and occasionally you'll encounter it. Uh, if you are serious about ministry, Because as you come to Christ and you get serious about ministry and your life begins to change, sometimes the people who knew you when will scorn you. And they will say things like, weren't you the guy who back in the day did X? I remember when you used to talk X and so away. Okay? Or or there's a Hank Williams Jr. song that goes like this that all my rowdy friends have settled down. And there's a line in it that says, and Johnny Cash, who became a believer in this year, don't act like he did back in 68, right? Because back in 68, Johnny Cash was a stoner. He was a skirt-chasing, drug-taking, you know, not fine specimen of humanity, Okay. Uh, And he is getting scorned in a song by one of his friends. (laughs) Okay? And sometimes that kind of thing will happen. And it will be, you'll experience when you are doing God's work in God's way, in his power, you will experience homegrown opposition. 
you will also probably experience what I've called here spiritual opposition. Jesus' ministry is entering a new new phase. And um, we pick up at the end of verse 6, going forward to the next few verses. Um, Jesus, his ministry is entering a new phase, and he's not just by himself going from place to place with his disciples following. Now they have watched him enough where he is saying, now I've done it, you go do it. Um, Just as an aside, that is a good discipleship method. I do it, you watch. I do it, you help. Then you do it. And I'll watch and report back on what happened. They're going to report back in chapter, um, at the end of this chapter, on what their ministry looked like. Um, But he sends them out in pairs. So they're not all by themselves. They go out in pairs to go and minister. And he gives them authority um, to do ministry. He gives them authority over evil spirits, the text says. They're able to do miracles. They're able to cast out demons just like Jesus did. And he gives them some specific instructions. He says, take nothing for the journey. In other words, you're not to, you're not to prepare. You're to travel light. Take a staff to walk with. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take money. Wear sandals. But don't take an extra, don't take a suitcase. You're on an important mission. You know, it's like special forces guys, you know, where they, they drop them in somewhere behind enemy lines, and they've got their rifle and some ammunition, maybe a cook stove, um, but they don't have a lot of extra gear weighing them down. And Jesus is sending these guys out two by two to go and minister in his authority and with his power. And they're going to do that. But why does Jesus need to give them authority over evil spirits? Because they're going to be opposed by evil spirits, right? There is going to be spiritual opposition to ministry. Uh, one of the things Karen and I have noticed repeatedly in our ministry with our family is that whenever things start to be effective evangelistically, um, our family gets sick. I get sick, she gets sick, kids get sick. We go through all kinds of health stuff. It doesn't even phase us anymore because we've been living this pattern for the last eight and a half years, okay? Whenever there's some big evangelistic opportunity that I would have uh, in our former church, I would invariably get deathly ill. Um, uh, we would have somebody in the hospital. We would have something going on that just ramps up the pressure. Now, it's entirely possible that, well, you just happen to be unlucky and you get germs, okay? But I think that at least part of that is a form of spiritual opposition. I think that we encounter that in our church when we do things like Awana and people get tired and they get sick and they have work stuff that comes up and they can't make it that night and this kind of thing. Why? Because we are being tremendously evangelistically affected with Awana. We've had at least 30 kids come to Christ, and we share Christ with new kids every week. Okay? But hear this. We are going to encounter spiritual opposition. Okay? We are going to encounter spiritual opposition, and you need to be ready for it and recognize it and recognize that you have authority over it. 
and that when things like sickness and 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 um, actual you may encounter actual demonic oppression of people, that when you encounter that, um, you can pray against it in God's authority and in the name of Jesus. And you can say, Father, put your hedge of protection around me. Set your angels about our church, about our ministry staff, about me and my family. Set your angels around me and protect me. Because spiritual opposition, we may not see it, but it's real. And it really happens. Okay? Um, uh, The disciples are ministering out of poverty. They're to go out without a lot of extra stuff and to be taken care of and provided for by the people to whom God will send them. And they're not to move around from place to place. It says, go to the town, and when you get there, stay with the same person until you leave. So in other words, just stay with the same person. And if they're a poor person, you know, share with them in their poverty. And if it's a rich person, maybe you get a little better circumstances. But you're not to try to move up the ladder. Because sometimes that's what happens as you do ministry. Eventually it becomes popular. And so then it's like, well, now I get a little more plus circumstances. A little rich guy asked me to move in with him for a while the rest of the time I'm in town. And, you know, I like steak better than peanut butter, so I'm going to move in there. And, and Jesus' caution against that is specifically so that the integrity of the message will be maintained. Because if it appears to people watching that you are only in it for the money, it compromises the message of the gospel. And so he says, stay in the same place. Don't take a lot of extra stuff. Be, allow your needs to be provided for by God and these people that, whom he calls and then you will be able to glorify God and give him praise, and you will not cloud the message by your life. Uh, the last kind of opposition that you see, and we don't see it a lot here, but is nonetheless real. When you are on mission from God, you see sometimes, in some places, governmental opposition to that. And and Jesus and his disciples witness one of these dramatic examples of that in the death of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist stood against Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod the Great was the king over Israel and Judea uh, when Jesus was born. He had four sons. Um, one of those sons is named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a daughter who, whom he named Herodias. Okay, he had two other sons um, uh, that figure into this story. One of them was named Herod Philip, and another one Herod Antipas. Now Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus, grew up and married her uncle Herod Philip. Gross, and then she decided that she didn't like that guy as much, and so she married her other uncle, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas and Herodias are in this story, okay, along with her daughter, Salome, that she had had with Herod Philip. Okay, so this is 
Y'all, those of you who are adults can do the math on this. This is a gross situation. Okay? Um, Herod, uh, Herod had been hearing from John the Baptist preaching against what he was doing. Um, justly so. Amen? Um, this is an immoral relationship. He should not be in it. And John is, is citing the immorality of the ruler as a reason and as proof that the nation needs to repent. Herod needs to repent of what he's doing. His wife, Herodias, becomes upset. And because uh, Herod wants to keep the wife happy, he, sa- he has John put in prison. And she waits. She's used to palace intrigue. She's been part of a lot of them. And she waits for the opportune moment. And the opportune moment comes. Herod has his birthday. They have this big party. They invite all the leading citizens of the area. And she sends her daughter out to do a lascivious, disgusting dance for her stepfather, uncle. And he is seduced by it. And she uh, so pleases Herod and all his guests that he says, I'll give you everything I have up to half the kingdom. Now, Herod didn't have a kingdom. He was tetrarch. He was ruler over a fourth of the area that his father had had. And his right to rule came from Rome. There was no kingdom that he had to offer. But he's using kind of proverbial language to say, I'll give you up to half of my stuff. This is great. And... She says, she goes back to her mom and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And mom says, ah, yes. Now the moment has come. We can get rid of John. And she says, tell, tell dad that you want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. She asks. And she gets it. And it's a tragedy. Um... John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was the Elijah who was to come, who was promised through Malachi. According to Jesus, among those born of woman, there was no one better than John. No one who had ever been any better than John. John was a noble, admirable man, and he cared a whole lot more what God thought than what any man thought, even if that man was the king who had power over life and death. And in the death of John, you're going to get a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus because Jesus is just as much a threat to Herod and his power as John was, in fact, more so. Because John was simply the forerunner, the man who preceded the coming of the king. And Jesus is, in fact, the arriving king. And Herod is going to play a role. This guy, Herod Antipas, is going to play a role in the death of Jesus. He's going to be one of the people whom Jesus goes to for trial. And so you get a little foreshadowing here. But whenever you care more about what God thinks than what the government thinks, you're going to run smack dab into the middle of governmental opposition. These folks in Indonesia that our church supports, these are some brave men and women. 
I wish that you could meet them. I have met some of them, and these people are three-quarters and gristle and the rest backbone. Okay? I mean, they are something else. Because they are going into places knowing that it may well cost them their life and the life of their wives and children to go and do what they're doing. It's not technically illegal to share the gospel in Indonesia, but you can, be, you can wind up just as dead and the government will not do anything about it. And you can encounter societal, governmental opposition. There are over a million Christians now in Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran. Worldwide, Muslims are losing about 6 million people to Christianity every year. In countries where it's officially illegal to convert. Do you think that it's just possible they're encountering governmental opposition? They are. Okay? The day may well come in our country where there will no longer be um, separation of church and state in the way that there is now, and the state will start to exercise authority over the church and tell us what we can and can't do. Now, that day may never come. I pray that it doesn't. I pray that we retain the freedom we have to share the gospel. One day it may, if it does. Do you care more about what God thinks or about what the government says? Um, I'm just going to close this down because my voice is about gone. Jim's going to do communion for us. Um, but let me say this, okay? Just to give you a word of personal challenge. Will you embrace the mission in spite of the opposition? Will you embrace the mission in spite of the opposition? If you are a spiritual leader, and by that I don't mean someone who necessarily has a title in an office, but someone who is serious about the gospel of Christ going out, someone who is maturing in their faith and who wants to be on a mission from God, you're going to probably encounter at somewhere along the way some kind of homegrown opposition, maybe among your friends at school, maybe among your own parents, maybe in your own house with your spouse. That happens, by the way. Maybe uh, with your colleagues at work, maybe with your neighbors. You're going to encounter people who... Or take offense at you. And while we're not to be deliberately offensive. Necessarily as believers. The gospel and the truth of God. That starts with a capital T truth. Is offensive to people in our day. And you will hear repeatedly that there is no truth. And those who stand for the absolute truth of God's word. Are regarded as narrow minded. Bigoted. Uneducated. Clod kicking hillbillies who don't know any better, okay? And you are going to get scorned on this. Are you going to embrace the mission regardless of the opposition? You may encounter, if you get serious about the gospel and about spreading the, the word of Jesus and the life of Jesus and carrying 
around in your body the life of Jesus, you are probably going to face spiritual opposition, either from unspiritual people or from unspiritual demons. It's probably going to happen. Are you willing, in spite of that, to say, Lord, have mercy, may you protect me, but come what may, I'm pressing ahead. And if I get sick or I get tired or I even get killed, I'm going to share the gospel with those who need to know it. Are you willing? Let me ask especially you young people, those of you with youth and energy and idealism and a commitment to Christ, are you willing to go to places where there is governmental opposition sharing your faith? There are 1.3 billion people in this world across the 1040 window who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're among the most unreached. They're the hardest soil. They're the toughest to come by converts. But there are people who need Jesus. And if you go there, chances are you will go to prison. You will get possibly stoned, as Paul was. And if you go there, you may even die. But God will love you a whole lot. Are you willing to embrace the mission regardless of the opposition? I am so proud of our church. We have got on board with God's mission in so many ways, with MOPS and with Awana and with youth group and with children's ministry and with missions and with Bible studies that the ladies are doing, they are bringing people into this body and we are saying to them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the gospel. I am so proud of all of you. I'm so proud to be part of this group of people who are shaking the foundations of the kingdom of darkness and bringing people out of that into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's dear son. I am so excited to be with you and to talk to you about God's word and to see you put it into practice and to see you live for the living God. Will you continue to embrace the mission in the face of opposition? Let's pray.